Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast veers a little bit from the usual format of our show. This time around, we invited two writers to join in an interactive discussion on April 15th at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. Authors Peter Guy and Amy Green came together for an evening of conversation about their work and the rich physical landscapes that drive their writing. Set against the powerful lakeshore terrain of northern Minnesota, Peter Guy's second novel, The Lighthouse Road, beautifully explores the hardship and isolation of life in a turn-of-the-century logging town. Guy, a Minnesota native, is also the author of the award-winning novel, Safe from the Sea. Amy Green first brought her native Appalachia to life with the spellbinding debut novel, Bloodroot, in 2010. Her second novel, Longman, explores rural Tennessee in the summer of 1936, as a government-built dam is about to flood an Appalachian town to bring electricity to the area. Longman was released in February 2014. Thank you, um, first of all, to Amy for making the long trip here to be with us tonight. I can tell you uh, that when I finished reading this book, I thought, here's the next big thing. It's a sensational book, and I'm um, anxious to learn all sorts of things from you tonight. Um, thanks also to Club Book and to Dave back there at Common Good and to Jason for bringing Amy and I together, or having the original idea to bring us together, and to our suffering spouses who are both here. <laughs> <coughs> Mine hasn't been to one of these in a long time, and she said to Jason tonight, I, I, don't, I, I almost never get to do this as though it were some... <laughs> It's a uh, treat. Some treat, exactly. <laughs> uh, but hopefully we'll make it a treat tonight. Um, Amy and I have not told each other the questions that we have. And my suspicion is that there might be some overlapping. But, um, but we didn't cheat. We didn't cheat. There was no cheating. I had to write mine down because I was so nervous about being in her company tonight. Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know if I believe that or not. <laughs> um, so let's get started. And I guess what we'll do is we'll talk for a little while, we'll ask each other questions, and then the audience will have a chance to ask questions also. Um, I'm going to do something, and I just had to ask Amy for permission to do this, but in, in, as a way of introducing my first question, I wanted to read to you a page from her book um, that, well, that sort of is a, is a good prelude to the question that I have to my first question. I think it'll also give you a chance to hear just how how beautiful this woman writes. This is just, it's just a, uh, I, I'm not gonna introduce it because the question will do that, but this is just uh, right, right from the middle of the book, right from the middle of a scene. 
It says, <clears throat> once the grander church was built, Beulah kept it home on Sundays. It was too suffocating without the doors and windows open. Stained glass couldn't be raised to let in butterflies. Beulah had a fine time talking to Jesus, standing in front of her cabin, looking into the woods anyway. She didn't have to sit in a hot church house to be a Christian, and she could read enough to interpret the scriptures for herself. Not that she was against the churches. They brought people together, gave them somewhere to go for fellowship on Sunday mornings away from the fields and factories. The people of Unita were losing more than their property. They relied on each other. If a house was taken by a flood, they rebuilt it. If a man got sick, they worked his crops. If he died, they rang the death bell, and the whole town came to see what needed doing. It hurt them to part, not knowing when or if they'd meet again. But grieved as they were, most had no bitterness about leaving. They believed they were doing it for their country, the same reason they signed up to fight in wars. It pained Beulah to see them going, but she understood. She was 85 years old. Through the generations, she had witnessed it again and again. What remained in the end was the rocks and the trees, the water running its course. To watch from her lonesome cabin made an ache in her chest, but there was just as much hope in it. Unita might be dying out, but those leaving on the road would surely take some of it along to the new places they settled. Even the river would go with them and the jars of water they took to pour in their radiators and dampen their parched throats. All the electric lights in the world couldn't blind them enough to forget what they brought out <clears throat> and passed along to the babies she wouldn't birth. Wherever they ended up, they'd still hear Longman rushing in their sleep. It made me very emotional to hear this writer that I love so much read my work. <laughs> Thank you for that. <clears throat> and I, I, I guess what it speaks to is this notion. I, I'll admit that I, um, I'm a very forgetful reader. I read a book, and almost six minutes later, I've forgotten who the characters are. In most cases, I've forgotten who the characters are and what the story is about. But the two things that always stick with me, or the two things that stick with me from, from, from books that I enjoy and books that I admire, are the landscape. That's not a surprise, but also the mood. And that paragraph, that page of prose that I just read, really, I think, evokes both of those things, which are in such abundance in your in your, in your writing and in your stories. Um, I came away uh, every time I sat down to read this book with a feeling of longing, with a feeling of sadness, with a, with a sort of um, a melancholy attitude, but also um, revitalized in a strange way, like, like there was hope for humankind. And I don't want to be too melodramatic, but it was just so... Go ahead. <laughs> so, more. so uplifting. And I wonder... Um, if you can talk about whether or not that's a, a sort of a, a strategy of yours to marry those two things, mood and atmosphere, or, or how it is that you view the way that you use landscape in your fiction. Well, I think that you know I have a, an organic approach to writing in general, so I don't really come at it with a strategy um, of any kind. I think that because I grew up in this landscape, and I know it so intimately, and I know the history in such a deep way, and I, I have such an emotional, and I, and I would even venture to say spiritual connection somehow to home. I even, sometimes I wonder if there's something to ancestral memories, this idea mm -hmm. of, of a born connection to just the dirt of, of where I come from. And, um, and you know, you mentioned 
longing and and hope, but this also this sort of conflict of of darkness and a lot of struggle. And um, you know, I, I don't come from the generation that had that hard scrabble existence and that's almost war with the land where they were sustained by what they could raise from it. And so there was this bittersweet connection to it almost. But I think because, especially in the mountains of East Tennessee, they have a sort of isolating effect. And the great thing about that is that the traditions and the oral histories are passed down. So even as part of a generation that's separate from the one I was writing about, I felt that I felt that longing just in, in the stories that my parents tell about their parents. So I think that may be where it, where it comes from. And I do think that, you know, I, one thing that I learned is that I was writing about the past, but so much stays the same, <laughs> particularly, I think, in Appalachia, um, and, and these cycles that sort of repeat. And so I'm, I'm thinking I'm writing the story about the past, and then I start thinking about what's going on in the present right now, not just in East Tennessee, but everywhere with storms like hurricane, you know, like the hurricanes, like Sandy, and the federal government is coming in and trying to figure out how to ethically relocate people. So it's this really, um, I think it was easy for me to create the mood because it's still mm -hmm. there. It's mm -hmm. still where I come from. And when I talked about what I was writing about, when I would visit, I would visit book clubs to talk about Bloodroot. And if they asked me what I was working on next, and I mentioned that I was telling this story about the Tennessee Valley Authority and the people who were displaced by the Tennessee Valley Authority in the 30s, there's still this palpable sense of longing and, mm -hmm. and regret and anger. So the emotions are still there, and I think it just naturally seeped into this story I was telling. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like the collective memory of, of a place. Exactly. Yeah. I think so. I think maybe, I think it's in the blood somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now do I get to ask you a question? So I'm kind of, I, I wrote these questions down over the weekend. I got out my copy of The Lighthouse Road with sticky notes and, and really just went through. And um, so I'm really excited to talk to you about this. And I think one of the connections that we have, and, and something that was really interesting to me reading the book, um, and I think the reason we were put, I think it's the reason we were put together, uh, for this event is because although we're over a thousand miles apart geographically, I sensed a kindred spirit when I read your work because I feel like, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, that you have that same connection to home and to place. Um, and you just write about northern Minnesota so vividly and you ha I, I feel like your work has that longing in it and that mood and atmosphere. Um, and I also felt like that your character, Ode, is like a force of nature himself. And so I wondered as I was reading this, because I certainly did grow up close to nature, and I wondered if, if you did. Did you grow up close to nature, and is that how it sort of permeates your work? Mm. I grew up um, in the inner city in Minneapolis, in North Minneapolis. Ah, well then I read you all wrong. <laughs> my playground was the alley behind our house. Wow, I, I, I did. My face is red, okay. <laughs> I did uh, like to get my fingers in the dirt as often as I could. And um, 
I did spend as much time as I could, and our family spent as much time as we could off in the woods. Um, in fact, um, a trip that we used to take annually, my father and I, <clears throat> was a trip up to the Boundary Waters, which is uh, an area in northern Minnesota on the border with Canada, and it's a beautiful wilderness sanctuary. And, and um, I remember looking forward to those trips sort of with a, 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 almost a hopeless antsiness. I just wanted to get up there so much. And one of the, the, this gentleman here was one of the guys who used to go with us, one of my father's good friends. And those trips were the highlight of my year. Um, and we went, not every year, but we went many, many times. And um, it was that longing, that longing to get up there and out of the city. I didn't mind living in the city. I still don't mind living in the city, though I would love to have a place in the woods. Um, but that longing and, and the excitement that that trip and those trips up north and into the woods generated in me really were the sort of the, I don't want to say they were the highlight of my childhood, but certainly they were one of the highlights of my childhood, and I relished them above anything. Um, and I think that uh, I took with me into it adulthood a sort of unconscious, of course all the conscious memories of it, but also a sort of unconscious memory of, that, of those times and those trips and, and of that wilderness and of that part of the world. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out that that could be my subject as a writer. I remember the first book that I tried to write was set like in hotels in France where I had been but certainly didn't know with any sort of intimacy. Not, I, that sounds all wrong but um, <laughs> didn't, didn't know in the same way that I knew my childhood memories in these places of my childhood. And um, it took me a long time though to figure out wh what that was, what that subject and what that landscape was. But once I did figure it out, and once I did figure out that this, this wilderness up north, not just the Boundary Waters, but the, the whole north shore of Lake Superior, uh, that, that it, could, it could be that place in my writing life. That it, even though I wasn't from there, I had enough of a connection to it, and I was still so in awe of it, as probably even more in awe as an adult than I was as a child, that it could sustain me artistically, and it could sustain my writing and uh, made a very conscious decision when I started to write my, my first published novel that that was going to be, that, that I was staking my claim to that part of the world. Um, and really have been unable to get away from it. Um, and it's for all sorts of reasons that I write about it and that I love it. Um, not just those childhood memories, um, but the sort of awesomeness that it still possesses. I mean, it's still a, quite a wilderness area. Uh, and even though there are restaurants and hotels and lodges along the way, uh, you can get lost there and you can get lost pretty, pretty good. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's just so changeable and so beautiful and so mysterious and the weather is so ominous and so, um, so threatening at times. All those things taken together and it just adds up to this, to this backdrop. Mm -hmm. So even though I grew up <laughs> in the alley behind my house, um, I mean, my parents would occasionally let me in, but um, I really, you know, I mean, it just, it didn't, that part of my childhood doesn't, doesn't have the same possession of me that, that, that my memories of the, of the wilderness do. Um, and I, so I, I guess that's as, as much of an answer as I can give to that. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I've just, I, when I finished The Lighthouse Road, I started writing another book that was going to be set in the alleys behind my childhood home, and I got about 20 pages into it and just felt no magic at all. Mm. Um, like, even though that's where my childhood was and it was a story about childhood, I couldn't conjure up the necessary excitement to, to write about it. But I love that we are writing about nature for completely different reasons. Yeah. Because for you, the word that struck me that you said was mysteriousness, and it feels like a desire to know mm -hmm. and a desire mm -hmm. to be closer. And for me, the longing is, as strange as this sounds, it's almost a homesickness mm. while being at home. Yeah. Um, so It's funny that you use the word homesick because I often feel, we, go, we travel up north all the time. I'm, I think I've been there six times in, in this new year already. And as soon as I turn off the lake in Duluth there, and um, you, you'll have to just picture this, but the highway mm. comes up, up the hill out of Duluth, and then all of a sudden you're just pointed straight south and you're headed home. I have an almost instantaneous feeling of homesickness. Though it's not yeah. homesickness, but it's the same sort of feeling for the place that I just left and wish that I could be back there. And maybe that's one of the reasons that I spend so much of my artistic time dwelling there mm. is because I have that longing to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else did I want to... Oh. <laughs> So <clears throat> I noticed this almost right away um, in, as another point of similarity between our work. This, um, I don't want to call it a preoccupation. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But for me, it certainly is a preoccupation. Mm -hmm. And it's about the way children and our families play a role in our lives. I, I mean, this is very much, your, the long, our long Man is very much a book about family um, and about um, not just who your real family is, but who the family of your community is. Mm -hmm. And I had this feeling that it must be, there's some of that here, of mm -hmm. course, um, by here I mean up north, that there's, you know, we have our family, of course, but we also have our extended family and we have our, our community. But it just seems like in, in Longman that the community is as much a part of Gracie's family right. and Annie family as her real family is mm. um, and um, is that a preoccupation for you as a as a mother yourself um, would it be do you think a preoccupation of yours if you lived somewhere else or didn't have kids do you think you could write the same sort of books I don't think so I mean I think that going back to that sort of historically hard scrabble existence uh, going all the way back to this to my Scots-Irish ancestors who came over and, and got the rocky highlands where the, the English took the sort of rich bottom land. Um, you know, they, these communities had to rely on each other. And there's still a sense of that. Because um, it, with my first novel, Bloodroot, those voices that I sort of tried to channel were the voices of, you know, the people who raised me. The, mm -hmm. I think of my church community and, you know, and the way that I grew up, my, you know, aunts, uncles, it's a very, it's still a very kind of, when you live where, or when, when you come from where I come from, there's still that sort of close-knit community. And you would think it would be almost the opposite because you're not living in a city. It's not an urban environment. But somehow the isolation makes it even, makes community even more important and even necessary. And I think one of the, one of the tragedies of 
what happened in the Tennessee Valley in the 30s was the breaking apart of these communities. Mm -hmm. um, it was because, you know, when somebody died, they rang the death bell and, and everybody in the community came to rally around and see what was, what was needed. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if, if the barn burnt down somebody, they, they all gathered to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, and I actually, one of the things that I relied on when I was um, writing Longman was the, these collected interviews. There was a book called TVA and the Dispossessed, and it was invaluable to me because it was um, a collection of caseworker interviews. And I remember, one of them always stands out, it was a man who owned a store, and he said it was like a funeral every day because the people who were leaving would gather at the store and cry and hug each other because these people who had been family and who had relied on each other for everything were being scattered. A lot of them were going north, even if they stayed in the area, they were not, you know, they were miles and miles away from each other and they never, they didn't know if they were ever going to see each other again. Um, and so, yes, to answer your question, I do feel like, um, and I'm so glad that my children have that kind of foundation of community. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I don't think I would have as deep an understanding of it if I were to, to be from anywhere else. Yeah. Do you think, do you see, I mean, you live there now, you live in the same place that you're writing about, or r r roughly the same place that you're uh, writing about. Um, do you see, I mean, can you, if you look closely enough through history, can you see the ramifications still? Of, of the dam project or of other things like that, do you think? Are you, I mean, I, I definitely do. I think, I think it's palpable yeah. here. And not only do I, I see the physical evidence yeah. of it um, because I'm surrounded by the dams and I'm surrounded by the lakes every day. And one of the things that inspired me to write Longman is that in, in my hometown where we live, we have Cherokee Lake and when the water is low in winter, you can see the tops of silos out in the middle of the lake, and it's this ghostly image, and they're sort of tagged with graffiti at this point. But, um, you know, and, and I remember asking my mom what those were, and she told me that there was a town buried underneath that lake. Um, like you asked her that when you were a kid? I asked her that when I was a kid. Yeah. I was about nine years old, and it sort of stuck with me. And, you know, and, and then, of course, as a child, I was just really intrigued by that. But then as an adult, I started thinking about what that meant and, um, and the sort of heartbreak of it. And, uh, and my mom told me recently, even I didn't really realize this until just uh, maybe a few months ago, and I don't know why she had never told me before, but we had a neighbor whose father had committed suicide because he was flooded out twice um, by the TVA. And so, and I feel like that as I mentioned earlier, like the people that I talk to now are so deeply affected by what happened. And I feel like also it's interesting that I don't know if, if the rest of the country is very aware of what happened in that moment in history in the Tennessee Valley. And, you know, uh, Roosevelt back then said that we're a part of the country forgotten by the American people. And that was another thing that still resonates with me today. I think that that's still true. I think that people don't often look at us, and when they do, it's in a negative way. So I, I feel almost um, a responsibility to, to
to tell this story. I, I realized at some point that I, that I felt a responsibility to tell the story because I feel like that, I feel like it's important. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me, this is a, I guess, a little bit of a departure from the, from the subject, but um, it does seem like uh, certainly there are no history lessons being taught in Minnesota about projects in Tennessee mm -hmm. <laughs> during the Depression, but there's such a phenomenally rich literature that comes out of that part of the country. The South in general, but I'm just thinking of, of Appalachia and writers like William Gay and, and, and Ron Rash and yourself and countless others, but those are the ones that just come to mind, um, who are um, maybe doing the work of the history writers, the histories that aren't getting written or something like that? I think so. I mean, I, I didn't realize that at, when I started writing because, of course, you have a compulsion to tell a story, and that's what you begin with, yeah. and that's sort of at the, at the root of it. But I realized at some point that it, it's sort of an act of preservation too. Mm -hmm. um, even the language that even the language that we speak and kind of trying to get that right. Um, I didn't realize I had an accent until I went to Vermont and, and then <laughs> and then people were asking me to repeat myself all the time. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, that I carry the mountains with me everywhere I go. But um, I don't know, I think I, I feel I do feel a moral responsibility also to sort of record that, mm -hmm. that unwritten history, yeah. because what we have is an, an oral history too. Um, and I wanna ask you so, something similar. I, I told you there would be overlap. Yes, right? there would be overlap, <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, how am I gonna do this? Because so many of my questions are ones that he just asked me. <laughs> um, but I just, I wonder, because you asked me, could you, would you be a different writer, in, in essence, I think is what you asked me, if you came from somewhere else? So I'm, I wonder the same about you, and you know, does where you come from geographically, has it shaped you as a writer or, or, and or as a person? And if so, how? Uh, the answer is yes to both for sure. Um, and I think as much as uh, the place has shaped me, the nature of our lives here has shaped me. I think there, there are a lot of similarities between um, not necessarily life in Minneapolis, but life in the part of the world that I write about, and life in the part of world that, the part of the world that you write about. Um, again, even though there are all those miles separating it, and even though um, you don't have 80 inches of snowpack in Tennessee like we have up north, which is uh, was true as of last weekend, we were <laughs> snowshoeing through the woods and fell in up to our waist. I did. My wife didn't fall through the snow. Um, but it is, um, it is a sort of a forgotten place. Everyone in Minnesota knows about the North Shore because everyone has gone on their vacations there since they were a kid, but no one else does. I venture to guess you never heard of, no. you know, Two Harbors, Minnesota before, um, <laughs> right. before you read, uh, uh, what's it called, the Lighthouse Road? <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's bad, Peter. <laughs> that's really bad. Um, but, but absolutely, and, and, I, and I, um, I, think that I, I think that I take some sort of pride in it, in, in being a writer about this place. Minnesota's mm -hmm. a, a, a wonderful literary state. We have a rich tradition, we have an exceptional present. Um, so many wonderful writers and arts organizations and, um, you know, writers that are just some of the best writers working. Louise Erdrich comes yeah. to mind. Leif Anger comes to mind. 
Um, I'm sure if I thought for six seconds, I could think of a few more, but you know, just these phenomenal writers. And to be, uh, certainly I'm not a part of that tradition as much as I'm trying to be a part of that tradition. Um, but it, yeah, there's like a badge of honor that comes along with that, I think. And, and, and I actually um, sort of modeled my books either maybe, maybe more subconsciously than consciously on a lot of the Southern writers that I've read. Like I always heard about and wrote about and read about in graduate school the Southern Gothic and thought, I'm going to be the Northern Gothic writer. <laughs> um, and and so, so, yeah, I mean, I approached it that same sort of way. And I don't want to say that I was methodical about it, but I was conscious of, of like I said, of making that claim. And, uh, you know, I touched on this earlier, but not only am I incapable of it, of writing about someplace else, at least for now, mm -hmm. but nor do I have any interest in it. Um, and I think that that sort of gets to the answer to your question. That is that um, it's, it's, my, it's my terrain. My emotional mm -hmm. terrain is tied directly to the physical terrain and landscape. The um, sort of the whole tenor that I write in, that I try to write in is it could, it, it's possible that it could be written somewhere else, mm -hmm. but it's so, the, 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 the part of the world that I'm writing about is so intrinsic to the nature of these characters and to my own nature. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that I could or, or, or would want to. Um, well, that, that brings me to another question. Would you object to being called a regional writer uh, or having a, that label? That's such a tricky... Mm. A sticky wicket. I know. I never know how to answer that, yeah. so I want to see what you do. Yeah. And then when people ask me, I'll do it. So, You know, I always, um, in another grand gesture, invoke Faulkner, mm -hmm. who is sort of the ultimate regional writer. Right. I mean, wrote about one little fake county, you yeah. know. Um, but everyone in the world knows who Faulkner is and knows about, that, 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 about his little county down there um, in the south because... He was so focused on bringing that part of the world to life, and he did it with such elegance and such greatness. And I think that writers aren't regional writers. This is my this is my um, this is how I've come to think of this. Okay. Uh, readers are regional readers. If someone said, "Do you write uh, to appeal to a Minnesota audience or to a universal audience?" The answer is, of course, I write to a universal audience, even though I know most of my readers are from Minnesota. It's not up to me, though, whether I'm a regional writer or a, an American novelist or any of those That's other true. things. It's the, it's the readers of the world that get to decide that. Um, and I I'm not just talking answer. about whether or not my book sells in Oakland, California or yeah. not. I'm talking about whether or not um, the stories that I'm writing mean something to the readers who might buy the book in Oakland, California or Unita, Tennessee. Yeah. Um, it, it's up to them. So much, I've, I think I've learned this so well, so much of what I am as a writer and whether I'm a regional writer or whether I'm a lyrical writer or whether I'm a landscape writer or whether I'm um, any of these things depends on the people who read the book. I write the only way that I know how, the only, um, with the only emotional currency that I have available to me. And if that speaks to other people and touches other people, and if other people connect with that, then I guess I'm not a regional writer, if right. those people are from out, outside of the Midwest. Mm. 
At the same time, I don't think so many writers that I know feel it's some sort of put down or something to be yeah. called a regional writer, which I think is silly. Um, I don't shrink at all from the fact that I write about Minnesota and that I'm a Minnesota writer. I take courage in it. What about you? I I'm asked it so often, in a, I, and I find myself, I'm, I love your answer because it's so true. It's, you know, we're labeled by, you're, we're labeled by our publishers. Mm -hmm. We're labeled by our readers. Um, and and where, whereas I am simply telling the stories that I feel compelled to tell, that are in me to tell, and that's all that I can do. Um, but I think I think it's sort of a loaded question when somebody is. I think somebody is asking you that with expectations that you that you're offended mm -hmm. to be to be labeled a Southern author or a regional writer. And I found that I almost I don't know how to. To answer it, but I do know what I feel, and that is that there's right now in my life there's a lot of rich literary territory to mine where I am, mm -hmm. and I can't say that I would never write about another place, but I do know that no matter what I write about, I'm going to be writing about it from the perspective of a working class Appalachian woman. That's my worldview, it's, it's who I am, it's where I come from, it's all I can do. So whatever that means about me is, you know, mm -hmm. is who and what I am. If that's what I am, then that's what I am. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly not offended by it and I, I have a lot of pride in where I come from yeah. and loyalty even to where right. I come from. Right. Just as long as you don't come up here and start trying to write about Minnesota, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm awful taken with this place. Uh, is it my turn? To That's ask what I can't question? remember. Who yeah. asked the last one? Well, I'm going to ask one. Okay, go ahead. With you. Um, and this is a departure. This is more of a this is more writer talk now, maybe. So okay. hopefully we can we can keep it interesting. But one of the things that I was um, absolutely amazed by in your book. For those of you who haven't read the book, there's all sorts of things going on, but sort of the, if there was a spine to the book, there's a, a young girl, there's a, just a few people left in this, in this town and in this community, um, right as they're about to start letting this, uh, this lake fill up, the dam is built, and, and everyone's been asked to leave, but there are just a couple of people still around, and one of them is a, is a young woman who has a young, child. Her name is Gracie. The, the child's name is Gracie. Um, and she disappears. And it is, uh, I just literally got like the full body chill thinking about it. Just terrifying. The story of Gracie disappearing in this, um, not just because it's a child disappearing, but because of all the natural and unnatural things that are happening in this town. Mm -hmm. And there's no time to find her. That water is going to fill up this community very soon, um, and 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 there's that um, sort of electrical thread right up the middle of this book, that it would to me it was would have seemed so tempting to just build entirely around that. But what you do instead, I mean, there's certainly the the story gets a lot of treatment. But what you do instead of making this sort of propulsive missing child, gone girl kind of story. Which may have made me a million dollars. I kind of wish I had gone that route. <laughs> You're still Sorry. a million dollars. Sorry. You, you, you build this whole history of this town 
and of these characters, probably there must be what four or five of them whose stories um, and past connect and disconnect and come back together and threaten each other and, and buoy each other. With all of these digressions, you'll say in one sentence that the girl is gone, and in the next sentence we're reading about um, something that happened 40 years ago, some relationship between a couple of the characters that has nothing on its surface to do with the missing child. But it's, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's a, um, well, a really risky, for one, but incredibly beautiful way of bringing a town's collective memory to life. Um, and how did you resist the temptation to do the Gone Girl thing and to do this other thing instead? Which, for the, well, for the record, um, I, I thought it was just absolutely beautiful the way that you were able to control it and able to um, bring all these other lives to the surface, even with this incredible thread you know, running through it. Well, the temptation for me was actually to let the characters completely take over and write a completely character-driven novel. And, and that's why my editor and I went back and forth so many times, really, because she was saying, you know, she had to kind of keep me in check and say, you know, keep the action uh, present and keep bringing it to the forefront so that there is that propulsive element to the book. But for me, I love character-driven stories. And for me, it's all about the characters. It's character development over plot because I, plot is what happens to the characters. And if you don't care about the characters, then you don't care what happens to them. So the plot is meaningless. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, w it was about finding a balance for me because I would get so lost in these characters and fall so deeply in love that I felt like everything that their entire history, I almost wanted to, to bring it to the page. I wanted to, to tell about them. And I think there was this urge almost to, to make the reader love them as much as I do. Mm -hmm. or, so for me, it was about finding that balance and um, you know, kind of finding a way to show rather than tell through exposition who these people are. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, it was the opposite temptation. I mean, that was something that, you know, my editor would keep saying it's not there yet because I don't think that this needs to be shown on the page. Um, so, you know, like I said, I, I probably should have written The Gone Girl <laughs> because, you know, I would, I would be in a much different <laughs> financial position right now. But, but I just You can't. wouldn't have your integrity, though, right? That's, that's it. I'm no sellout. <laughs> But the problem is I couldn't sell out if I tried. If I, if I sat down and, and decided I was going to write a pot boiler and, and I just couldn't do it because for whatever reason, the calling that we have as writers or whatever is spiritual about it or, you know, because I do feel like you can be born to do something mm -hmm. and it demands that I tell the stories that are, that are there. And for me, the stories are about the characters. Mm -hmm. um, and what, that's what, um, another thing that I wanted to, ask you about because your characters, for me, I mean, where you, while you do have um, some these intense moments where you have the rum running and the wolf hunting and you have, you know, these almost frightening moments, um, well, they are frightening moments and, and very intense things happening. For me, this book and what I'm left with is the people who, who populate Gunflint and the people 
um, you know, that, that, the, that I care about so deeply. And these, uh, one thing that I, I found striking was that you and I are both writing about a one-eyed orphan. Like, how does this happen? <laughs> what? He, who does that? So that's why I knew that you and I were going to get along famously. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that should be a whole new section here at the <laughs> library and yes. bookstore. One-eyed orphans. Who knew that was a thing? I had no idea. I thought it was just me. My fascination with sort of feral one-eyed orphans. Um, but what I wondered as I was reading this, so what came first for you? Was mm. it these characters, or was it the sort of idea of the story? Um, boy, what was it? You know, is it, is it a cop-out to say sort of both things? Like, I knew that I was going to write another book about this place. And I knew that it was going to take place at this time, and that it was going to have, at first, just the character of Thea, the mother character. Um, and then eventually that it would have Ode and the other characters as well. Um, but what I, okay, so what I knew first was that I wanted to write a sort of, uh, in my mind what I was thinking of as like a Shakespearean tragedy, <laughs> full of melodrama and kind of almost outrageous characters hyperbolic characters in any way that are still believable, people that still would have lived in this world. The character of Hosea, for example, is a sort of, um, you know, villainous, almost ridiculous character, but he still can exist in this world. Um, so I guess, it, I guess it's impossible to say which came first, except this idea of tragedy and of sadness and of... Um, you know, uh, uh, a sort of large and melodramatic story. But it didn't take long. I'm not the brightest guy when it comes to this. Like, I thought, I'm going to map this out, and I'm going to have this perfect story, and it'll take me six months instead of 10 years to write this book. And I had that all done. Like, I'm like, two months, I'm going to start the clock now, and I'll be done with this book. Um, it didn't take more than six hours after that to realize that I had no idea what I was doing mm -hmm. and that there were going to be whole other characters that had to be invented and whole other storylines that needed to be incorporated and braided into the story. Um, but it's wonderful that that happens. I think about that all the time. If I had done what I set out to do originally, there would have been no excitement in it for me. And, and I write for the same reason that I read, to be surprised and to be... Um, taken aback and to be scared and to be um, and to fall in love with characters and it's so interesting to hear you talk like to say that uh, you know you want the reader to love these characters as much as as much as you do I had the same feeling about mm -hmm. these characters in my book in fact um, when the book was done and ready for publication the uh, my editor asked me to write a letter uh, and just address it to the reader what do you hope the reader comes away from with mm. this book and I hemmed and hawed and thought about it and had no idea what to say. And finally I realized that I was missing the characters, my characters in the book, in a sort of unnatural way. Like I was feeling a little psychotic about it. Like I could actually be in love with these people as though they were my own family. Yeah. But I was. I mean, I had that genuine feeling. And I wrote a letter saying that if, if you feel about them the same way I do, then you'll, then you'll enjoy the book and you'll, and you'll remember these characters. Um, 
And it really was like impossible to give, and not wasn't like impossible, it was mm. impossible to give them up. They're in the sequel, yeah. you know? Mm. And um, I don't know, however it starts, it always ends up with the characters. It's the same thing for me. I mean, I, I, I mentioned that I, what I remember is the landscape and the mood, but both of those things are made three-dimensional by the characters who inhabit the landscape and, and are living And they embody. They're living yeah. embodiments, I think, right. of the landscape, too. Right. Yeah. At this part of the discussion, Peter Guy and Amy Green open up the floor to questions and comments from the Club Book audience. Our first question asker comments that both novels take place in the past. He wonders if our authors find an ease and comfort writing about the past because they can avoid the noise of the modern world going on around them. I don't know about ease because for me, I think I was a little bit, I was nervous to write about, to write about this historical moment that people had lived through and were still passionate about. Um, and I don't like historical novels generally. And I, I feared, you know, I didn't want to be bogged down in research because I felt like uh, I didn't want to write a textbook. I wanted the humanity of these people to be at the forefront. So I, was, I actually was not on completely solid ground writing about the past, but what I found was I actually bought a lot of photograph books from that era. I got the WPA uh, photographs and Dorothea Lange's photographs, and I studied the faces of these people, and I, I looked at the, their surroundings, and I learned that they, that, you know, that they bought Clabber Girl baking powder and different, you know, I just immersed myself in that world, and then the ease came. If I could lose myself in that world where it was quiet, and there wasn't a all the modern clamor, then when I found that sweet spot, I was able to, to live in it and love it. But it was a little bit of a rocky road for me at first, even just deciding to commit and write a historical novel. I have a similar answer to the question. I didn't even realize until I was 100 pages into the writing of this book that I was, in fact, writing a historical novel. And even then didn't quite realize it and didn't realize it fully, certainly, until my publisher started calling it a historical novel. Um, I, my misgivings were more, had more to do at the outset with writing from the woman's, a woman's point of view. Um, I, I, I don't want to say that I set it up to myself as a challenge, but maybe I did. That might have been part of my instinct or impulse. Um, but what I discovered in both the fact of writing about a woman or writing from a woman's point of view and in writing about a time so long ago without any of the um, sort of um, tools of existence that we have at our disposal now was that um, as soon as I, like you said, just sort of exhaled and let myself free with it, it was incredibly liberating. And I think that the reason that that was true for me was because it was just me and my imagination. Of course I had done research and of course I had to figure out you know, what kind of horses they might have used and what sort of you know, um, stemware might have been available in the hotel lobby in 1896. It was also um, just, I just made everything up. And I'm best <laughs> in life maybe, and certainly in writing when I'm just making things up. <laughs> and um, it, was in a, it was a really liberating and really, um, 
I don't want to say it was rewarding, but it was really fun. I mean, it was really fun to, to spend time not only with the characters, who I was growing to love so much, but in a time that I knew nothing about. It was a little bit like getting to be a pioneer. And I, and I loved that part of the process. Our next question is directed to Amy Green, inquiring what the response has been in her local community surrounding the release of her book. Do people feel like this book is a tribute to them? That's another thing that I was sort of nervous about is how this story would be received because I'm writing about the Tennessee Valley Authority and, and, and I know people who, and I've come in contact with the, the wife of the president of the Tennessee Valley Authority. So, so I'm writing about a little bit of a controversial subject where I come from. And it's been an overwhelming sort of tide of support for the novel. And one of the great things about the community that we talked about and the sort of close-knit you know, way that, that we live is that there's a pride that comes with it and a loyalty. And even, especially with, with my first novel, Bloodroot, I, because it's not a, a story about unicorns and rainbows, it's a kind of dark, dark story. And so I didn't know how my family and my hometown would accept it. But I think the outpouring of love and support is about, you know, she's ours and this is one of our own. So I feel like I, I underestimated my people in a way because, um, yeah, they've been incredibly supportive and they have, you know, come to me and said, you're, you're, doing, you're doing us proud for one, which is like incredibly gratifying to hear, but, you know, keep telling our stories and, and let's make them look at us in a positive way and, and make them hear, make the rest of the country hear what's going on here. You're welcome. Our final question comes from a woman wondering what Amy Green's feelings are about progress and how it is to write about history and the challenges of making it come to life. Progress is, and progress is not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's a complicated thing because I benefited directly from the TVA because my grandfather was a subsistence farmer and in that era they, they were uh, drowning in floods and dying of malaria and just struggling to exist on a few hundred dollars a year as subsistence farmers. And then because of the TVA, they, they modernized East Tennessee. They brought flood control and new jobs. And so my parents were able to work in the factories that came to us as a result of the TVA. So I, I think one of the things that I wanted to do was, I didn't want to write a black and white story about villains and heroes and heroines. I wanted to write the truth as I, as I know it and as I see it. But you're right, I mean, what we see is the progress and what we hear is, are the positive um, aspects of it. And, but I think what I, what I fear a little bit and what kind of seeped into the story for me was, I have this fear of this big government machine that steamrolls individuals. I think the individual gets lost, that's what it is. And so I, that's sort of the obligation that I've found that I feel is to tell the individual stories not to say that, you know, that, that progress is wrong or the TVA is wrong, but just to say, but this also happened and there were sacrifices made for the sake of progress. When you see the highway that has displaced people, even when you see the national, forest, the national parks that have displaced people, everything that you see, there's another side to this and just, it's an acknowledgement. It's not to, to, to an indictment or to make judgment, but it's an acknowledgement that there were people who suffered for the sake of this progress. 
if you haven't read Amy's book and if you don't buy it tonight, you'll, you'll feel like such a fool when you finally do get around to buying it and reading it. <laughs> but I can say the same of Peter's Lighthouse It is such read. a wonderful book. I'd like to uh, thank Club Book again and thank Amy. It was so nice getting yeah. to. This has been such a pleasure. I almost forgot y'all were out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> but just to sit up here and talk to Peter has just been so special. And I've, I've never been here before. I've, you know, I, I have thought about Minneapolis many times in my childhood because I love Prince, but, <laughs> but, but I've seen that there's much more to Minneapolis than Prince. I mean, it's, it, this is a beautiful, beautiful place, and, and it's been such a warm welcome, and I just thank you all so much for having me here. Well, that's it from our Roseville Library event with Peter Guy and Amy Green. Catch our next club book with J. Courtney Sullivan at the Chan Hassan Library on Thursday, April 17th, 2014 at 6.30 p.m. Meet J. Courtney Sullivan, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Club Book Facebook page. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all of the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to Ramsey County Library for hosting Peter Guy and Amy Green, and to all other libraries hosting events this season. That's it from Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>